This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 28, Indo-Europeans. of humankind, you are unlikely to see a section devoted to the Indo-European peoples. This is because Indo-Europeans are a concept that is not based on archaeological discoveries, which is completely unlike the stories that we have told about the Mesopotamians, the Hittites, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Minoans, the Mycenaeans and the Indus Valley Civilization. Instead, the Indo-European concept is based on the study of languages. Now, this is not to be confused with the study of writing, which was something that we discussed in episodes 21 and 22. So it is important to clarify that the study of writing and the study of language are different. For example, cuneiform was a type of writing and it was used by the Sumerians. The Akkadians spoke a Semitic language that was totally distinct from the Sumerian language. However, the Akkadians would adopt the cuneiform writing style when they discovered it. So although writing and language are linked, their histories are distinct. Let's go to the timeline of history that we have been exploring during this volume of the podcast. If we look particularly at episode 9 regarding the Mediterranean seafaring traders, the Phoenicians, then we discussed a world where the Greeks had begun to re-emerge in civilised societies following the demise of the Mycenaeans many centuries previous. We also saw the beginnings of the Roman Republic on the Italian peninsula when we talked of their rivals the Carthaginians during the same episode. The Latins of the Italian peninsula and the Greeks of the Balkan peninsula had strong trade links with each other. Along with the trade of goods would have been the trade of words. In linguistics these are called loan words. So the Greeks would have integrated Latin words into their own vocabulary and the Latins would have integrated Greek words. So this explains why the Latin languages of the modern world such as French, Italian, Portuguese, Spanish and Romanian have Greek words in their language. However, linguists believe that there is a deeper relationship between the two languages and that there are relationships that demonstrate that they came from the same origin. This would be an older language that would be the ancestor of both Latin and Greek. This kind of trend can be seen elsewhere 
and is not unexpected. So for example, we can look at the modern languages of the British Isles, which is dominated by the English language. The earliest form of English was brought to the British Isles by Germanic peoples who commonly migrated to and invaded the British Isles since medieval times. However, there are other languages spoken on the British Isles. They include Welsh, Scottish Gaelic and Irish, which are all considered to be Celtic languages. Other Celtic languages include Manx, spoken on the Isle of Man, which is one of the British Isles. Cornish, spoken in the English county of Cornwall. And Breton, spoken in the Brittany region of France. Early linguists identified similarities between Welsh, Cornish and Breton, which pointed towards a common origin. So it was obvious to many that modern languages were related to each other and it was logical that they would have a common ancestor or at least that particular words came from a common ancestor word. Linguists were absolutely fascinated by this potential relationship between languages and since early modern times or the 15th century onwards plenty of study into the similarities between many of the world's known languages was conducted. The Dutch author Marcus Zurius van Boxhorn, born in 1612, published works which demonstrated a relationship between Greco-Latin languages and Celtic languages. Not only that, but he would also include Germanic languages, Balto-Slavic languages and even Persian. 16th century linguists would include Russian and Sanskrit to this list. It was due to this acknowledgement of a relationship between the languages of ancient India and Europe that the phrase Indo-European was born. The big question would be that if the languages of the modern world are the product of the common ancestor that has been named Indo-European, then who were the people that spoke the original Indo-European? When were these people alive? And where did they live? Data Analysis One of the clues that linguists look at closely when trying to establish who the ancestors were is the kind of words that they were using. So let's say, for example, that these people came from the desert, then we would expect their descendants to have similar words for the desert, but maybe not for ice. If the descendants have similar words for horses, then their ancestors would have known horses and therefore would need to have lived in the range of the horse. Similarly, if the descendants have a similar word for the wheel, then we have to say that they were alive after the first widespread use of the wheel. So, you would have to find a place in history where wheels and horses were both in use. 
Then if you wanted to know whether horses were being used to pull wheeled carts, therefore combining the two concepts, you would look for similarities within the modern words for items like a harness. The biggest danger with this method of investigation is if we go back to the concept of loan words. So if wheeled transport or horses were introduced from one modern culture to another, then it is highly likely that the words for wheels and horses would have passed from one culture to another also. So linguists have to take great care in recognising the origin of a word within a language. One of the techniques used is to look for common shifts in letter sounds between the two languages. And this can sometimes be the clue in how to determine the difference between a common ancestor word and a loan word. I'd like to demonstrate this by looking at the ancient Greek word diskos, which very generally refers to things that are flat and round, such as mirrors and plates. The word has remained in the Greek language to the modern day to describe trays and data disks such as those used for music and computing. The word migrated into the Latin language as discus to describe the base of a sundial and a round serving tray or a quoit which was used in the athletic throwing discipline which has advanced to the modern world as the athletic throwing discipline which takes its great stage at the modern Olympic Games as the discus event. The Latin language would evolve into vulgar Latin, which is everyday speech, whereas traditional Latin would be preserved mainly for religious scriptures and ceremony. Vulgar Latin would evolve differently in different areas of the vast Roman Empire, and branches of what would later become the modern Latin languages began to emerge, such as Old French, Old Italian and Old Spanish. The word discus would evolve to become desco in Old Italian, which would become the word for a dinner table in modern Italian. But it would also pass into Middle English to become the word desk. A desk is a flat surface similar to a table. So there is a traceable relationship between the ancient Greek discos and the English desk, with the physical connection being a flat surface intended for presentation. However, this is not the only evolution of the ancient Greek word discos. When the Latin word discus passed into Germanic languages, the Germanic languages often softened the consonant sounds of vulgar Latin. The D would shift to a T and the SC sound would shift to an SH sound. This would not happen when the word entered Old French. So in modern French we have the word disc which was brought into English as disc whereas in German it has become Tisch, which is the German word for table. However, because English originated from Germanic languages, 
we also have another similar word, dish, which is the name of a flat plate used for presenting things such as food. So we have the modern English words desk, discus, dish and disc, which all originate from the Latin word discus, which has evolved from the ancient Greek word discos. So we can clearly see the patterns that words can take when they travel across land and time. Linguists use relationships like this to look for similarities which serve as clues to the origin of languages. I have just described one set of relationships, but if you are fascinated by the etymology of the words that we use today, then I would strongly recommend trying out the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud. Kevin's work is absolutely fascinating and I warn you that it is also dangerously addictive. We describe words such as desk, discus, dish and disc as cognate, which means that they have a similar origin. Kevin will provide you with many cognates as he explores the evolution of the English language. You will never look at the English language the same way again. Origins So this basically points us towards a field of study which can be utilised by comparing words from modern languages, extinct languages and the type of words in use to try to demonstrate the last common ancestor of any two or more languages. And this is where we get the concept of the Indo-European languages and the concept of a Proto-Indo-European language, which is the ancestor of them all. So it is for this reason that modern Latin, Celtic and Germanic languages, among many others, are called Indo-European languages. Let's have a look at times when we have mentioned Indo-Europeans previously in the podcast. Firstly, we mentioned the Hittites, who were the subject of episode 5. The language of the Hittites demonstrates Indo-European characteristics that are different from the neighbouring Semitic languages of the same time period, around 3,500 years ago. So this suggests an origin dating back to before this time. Another ancient culture who spoke an Indo-European language were the Medes, who alongside the Babylonians were responsible for the end of the Assyrian Empire, as described in episode 7. However, this was almost a thousand years after the emergence of the Hittite Empire. The Mycenaean Greek language, as deciphered from their Linear B scriptures, has also been recognised as an Indo-European language related to modern Greek. And this was contemporary, but also distinct from the Hittite language. So this suggests a common ancestor, maybe 4,000 years old or older, and from an area around the European and Asian border, which could suit a migration from a land of origin to Median lands later on. During episode 26, relating to the Indus Valley Civilization, we described how Aryans 
migrated into the abandoned lands of the Indus Valley, and this is also around the same time of the emergence of the Hittites and the Mycenaean Greeks. The Aryans are more commonly referred to as Indo-Iranians, due to the stigma attached to the term Aryan, since it was used by Nazi Germany during the 20th century to describe their concept of a superior Germanic race. Retrospectively, we know that the term Aryan was used incorrectly by Nazi Germany, who mistook Aryans as an archaic Germanic culture. However, such is the resonance of its usage that Indo-Iranian is now preferred. So where does this point to when determining the homeland of a proto-Indo-European people? Scholars have put forward multiple theories, but the one that carries the most popularity is called the Kurgan Hypothesis. If we consider that a proto-Indo-European homeland generated migrations towards Europe, Anatolia, the Iranian Plateau and the Indus Valley, then a likely place of origin would be the Pontic-Caspian steppe, which is the grasslands that stretch from the northern banks of the Black Sea towards the Caspian Sea eastwards, as far as the Kazakh steppe. The late Neolithic culture associated with these lands is called the Kurgan culture, and this is where the hypothesis gets its name. The Pontic-Caspian steppe is an area that is also the most popular place among scholars for the origin of horse domestication. Domesticated horses have definitely existed from 2000 BCE. However, there is debate about the origin of domestication, similarly to the debate surrounding the Proto-Indo-European homeland. The Pontic-Caspian steppe and the wider Eurasian steppe is the most popular theoretical place among experts for both. Tentatively, a date before 4000 BCE is speculated. These people of the Eurasian steppe constructed burial mounds, which are called Kurgans, which is where the culture and the subsequent hypothesis gets its name. This is where it is believed that the subsequent migrations into lands further afield began. Other theories on the table include a theory of the Proto-Indo-Europeans having an Anatolian origin. There are others which place origin in the Caucasus, Northern Europe and the Indian subcontinent. All of these locations are geographically feasible when taking a look at the homelands of modern Indo-European languages. So although there are many theories on the table regarding a place of origin, we can go back to studying languages to gain an idea about the likely splits and migrations. In order to determine how this study can be conducted, we can take a look at the word father and how the word is said in different Indo-European languages. If we go to the Greek language, which is always a good place to base any study due to its location, age and influence, the word father is pateras or pater, 
which is also pater in Latin. So there is a definite link between Greek and Latin, just as we found out earlier with the Greek word discos. However, we also find that the language of Sanskrit, closely associated with the Indian subcontinent and the primary language of Hindu scriptures, uses the word Peter for father, and this is surely not a loan word due to a father being a fundamental human aspect. We see reference to this word in the Rig Veda when describing Father Heaven, which in the Rig Veda is called Jauspitar. So the Pitar relates to the Sanskrit word Pitar. Further to that, the word for heaven, Jaus, has been supposed to come from a Proto-Indo-European word, which is the source of the modern words Dev in Hindi, which is a word for God, and Deus in Latin, which has descended in one respect to give us the modern word Deity, among many other word examples in Celtic, Germanic, Slavic, and so on. Another more commonly known word in Latin circles that has derived from the Vedic Jauspitar is the Roman god of the sky, Jupiter. You can hear the similarity. We are talking about the sky and we are talking about gods. It also comes down to us in Greek as Zeuspater and is the origin of the Greek god of the sky, Zeus. So we have yet another way to squeeze Zeus into a podcast episode yet again. We mentioned earlier how some words passed into Germanic languages and there was a shift in the consonant sounds, such as the Greek word diskos being cognate with the German word tisch. The D and T difference between Latin and Germanic words can be seen in English when comparing the number two with its cognate word duo. The SK and SH difference between Latin and Germanic words can be seen when comparing the word fish with its Latin cognate piscis. This also demonstrates the way that the P sound shifts to an F sound in Germanic words, which is why the word pater becomes the English word father. These consonant sound shifts demonstrate that Germanic languages are one branch of the Indo-European languages, which is why father is Vater in German and Vader in Dutch. The consonant sound shifts are described as something called Grimm's Law, named after Jacob Grimm, the elder of the two Grimm brothers who worked hard on the investigation of these word relationships during the 19th century. We analyse relationships like this to establish chronological splits, so we can tell that the Germanic languages must have split off on their own at some point due to the fact that they were all subject to the same aspect of Grimm's law, and they are obviously linked geographically as well. Linguists have also created words that they believe existed as part of a proto-Indo-European language based on the ones that they do know, even though there is absolutely no direct evidence 
of the Proto-Indo-European language. So it has been suggested that there was a word like Deus in Proto-Indo-European for God and Peter may have been the word for Father. But these have both been contrived from the words of known Indo-European languages. It would be sensible before we go forward though to mention at this point that there exists a school of thought which suggests an even earlier language ancestor called Indo-Hittite which claims that Proto-Indo-Europeans split from an earlier ancestor in around 7000 BCE and that this common ancestor may have originated in Anatolia and that the Hittites did not migrate from the European steppe into Anatolia bringing Indo-European language with them but that the Hittites were always in Anatolia before ultimately merging with the Hattic-speaking Hatti and creating the Hittite Empire. This theory goes against the popular theory that Proto-Indo-Europeans emerged in the lands of modern Russia. Migrations The earliest and most controversial language group to split from Proto-Indo-European under the Kurgan hypothesis are the Anatolian languages, with the most well-known of these being the Hittite language. So we know that it was the language of the powerful and influential Hittites, and by this association, in its strongest position during the second millennium BCE. However, as we know, the Hittites succumbed to the events of the late Bronze Age collapse, and we ask whether their language disappeared with them. If we go back to episode 7, about the Assyrian Empire, then we spoke of peoples called the Neo-Hittites, which were a collection of different pocket kingdoms who emerged in the remnants of the extinct Hittite Empire. Many Neo-Hittites spoke Semitic languages, but one of the strongest languages of post-Hittite Empire Anatolia is Luwian, which is an Anatolian language and as such an Indo-European language. So the Anatolian languages existed for many centuries after the Hittite Empire collapsed. In fact, right up until Alexander the Great led his Macedonian army through Anatolian lands. Linguists still disagree with each other regarding the earliest migrations of Indo-European languages, but this is purely down to a lack of firm evidence at regular intervals and some quite mysterious aspects. The Germanic languages have many mysterious aspects compared to other Indo-European languages and linguists have varying theories about the reasons why, such as it being an amalgamation of more than one language. There is speculation that it is related to the Balto-Slavic branch of Indo-European languages. Putting a date on when the Balto-Slavic languages emerged as a distinct group is very difficult, but we do suspect that Baltic and Slavic languages were showing signs of distinction from each other by around 1400 BCE. The Balto-Slavic languages migrated westwards into their modern homes in Eastern Europe sometime before this. The Baltic languages 
exist today as Latvian and Lithuanian, while the Slavic languages have become much more extensive. The Slavic languages can be split into three branches. The eastern branch is spoken in modern Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. The western branch is spoken in Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. The southern branch is spoken in all of the former Yugoslav countries and also Bulgaria. It is possible that there was a previous migration of Indo-European languages before the migration of the southern branch of Slavic languages towards the Balkan Peninsula, which could explain the presence of the unrelated Indo-European language of Albania. At some point there must have been a migration towards the south of the Balkan Peninsula, and this could have been the emergence of the Mycenaean culture of Greece. The language that was spoken by the Mycenaean shows a definite close relationship to modern Greek when compared to neighbouring Albanian and Slavic Indo-European languages. So we believe that the Mycenaeans spoke in a language which is an ancestor of modern Greek. But rather interestingly there is an area of the Peloponnese where a localised Saconian language still exists. It is believed to be a Hellenic language as are Mycenaean and modern Greek but also distinct enough that it is speculated to be a child of the language of the Dorians who could have been responsible for pushing the Mycenaeans out of their Peloponnesian heartlands during the late Bronze Age collapse. So we are now seeing how the study of language is one of the important subjects used to try and understand the timelines of history. Going back to the Germanic languages, however they emerged or coalesced, there is no doubting their relationship with each other. One of the most important early evolutions of Germanic languages was the one that migrated northwards into Scandinavia and became Old Norse. It is from Old Norse that we receive Norwegian, Swedish and Danish, as well as those Scandinavian North Atlantic Ocean languages of Iceland and the Faroe Islands. Those Germanic languages that did not migrate northwards would become Dutch and modern German, and many other local languages of the Northwest European continent. An important migration of peoples occurred during the first millennium CE when Germanic speakers travelled and settled the British Isles. However, a distinct language was already being spoken on these islands and it was also Indo-European. Celtic languages are very likely the result of an earlier migration of Indo-European speakers westwards across mainland Europe before the spread of Germanic languages. We know that Celtic peoples were in Central Europe alongside Germanic people to their north and the Roman Republic to their south, but they also migrated westwards onto the British Isles where their languages developed and can still be found today in Ireland, Scotland and Wales and even the western extremes of southwest England and northwest France. Germanic peoples would then migrate to the British Isles after the establishment of the Celtic culture there and this was the beginnings 
of the emergence of Old English. However, the English language that we use today also has a lot of Latin influence. We call the common ancestor of Latin and the subsequent Romance languages the Proto-Italic language and this is likely to have been another early branch of the Indo-European language expansion. Our earliest and most notable of Italic languages was Latin and it was used by the ever-growing power of the Roman Republic and the later Roman Empire which replaced it. However, as we have already discovered, Vulgar Latin evolved from Classical Latin and spread with the expansion of the Roman influence in Europe to become the Romance languages. Very many Romance languages still exist today, with the most well known being French, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian and Spanish. It would be the language of those living in French lands that would be taken across the English Channel in 1066 when the Normans of northwest continental Europe invaded and conquered the English and this is why there is so much Latin influence in the English language today. We have already established that Indo-Europeans must have also travelled eastwards and away from Europe as we discussed the Aryans of the Indus Valley who migrated after the demise of the Indus Valley civilization. It is more common to call these people Indo-Iranians and if the Kurgan hypothesis is correct then the Indo-Iranians would have migrated southwards from the Eurasian steppe during the second millennium BCE. The Indus Valley branch of Indo-Iranians would have been responsible for the first emergence of Sanskrit which became the language of the Vedas which are the sacred scripts that are honoured by the Hindu religion. During our ancient Egyptian episodes we spoke of an Indo-European migration into Iranian lands and this is thought to be a split of that same Indo-Iranian branch and would become the central influence of the Achaemenid Persian Empire who were speaking in the Indo-European language of Old Persian which would survive the comings and goings of many empires to become the modern Persian language of today's world. Persian is one of many Iranian languages, another of which to emerge that is still in use today is Kurdish, which established itself roughly in the lands of Mesopotamia, supplanting the Semitic languages which had a stronghold there for many centuries beforehand. In more modern times those other Indo-Iranian languages called the Indic languages and the ones more closely related to Sanskrit began to diversify in the lands in and around the Indus Valley. If the residents of the Indus Valley spoke in a language represented by the ancient Indus script then it might have been that they were speaking a form of Proto-Dravidian as there are still small remnants of Dravidian language in the Indus Valley today. Most Dravidian speakers are to be found in southern India now, so if this theory is correct then it could be that the Indic speakers pushed the Dravidians southwards and away from the Indus Valley. 
We believe that the Indus Valley civilization migrated in that direction when they abandoned their lands in the second millennium BCE. Indic speakers dominate most of the Indian subcontinent, with the most prepotent of these being Hindi. In the Indus Valley of modern Pakistan, the most dominant Indic language is Punjabi, but the official language is Urdu. However, it is fair to say that much like the Italic languages of Europe, the Indic languages of Southern Asia have also diversified and many different languages still exist to the modern day. Much like Albanian, the Armenian language appears to have been an isolated language of Proto-Indo-European origin. So it could be possible that Slavic and Iranian languages prevented Armenian languages from spreading outward from the Caucasus or that they replaced previous Armenian languages. With the fact that Europe has become dominated by the children of the Asiatic Proto-Indo-European language, the migrations and colonisations of Europeans in the most recent 500 years have seen Indo-European languages become the first languages of all the Americas. It has also become the second language of the Western, Southern and Central countries of the African continent, as well as being the first language of the largest oceanic islands of Australia and New Zealand. Almost half of the world speaks an Indo-European language as its first language. Over 400 Indo-European languages exist to this day. If there is a credibility to the speculation that the ancestors of Proto-Indo-European speakers were alive around 10,000 years ago, speaking an Indo-Hittite language and living somewhere in Anatolia, then it would be very ironic that the most dominant family of languages in the world, the Indo-European languages, are not even the first language of the modern country of its prehistoric heartland, Turkey. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Something a little bit different, but something a little bit intellectual, if you like, um, regarding the languages and the migrations of them. So these things, these episodes, help us also to better understand the other episodes. So I think they're essential in terms of tying together all the loose ends. So I think it was a an episode worth doing. It wasn't in the original plan, but... Temptation got the better of me as usual and I thought to myself well I think that's going to be a very good episode and it will open doors in the understanding of the entire narrative of the podcast. Big thank you to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. He celebrated his 30th birthday this week so uh, many happy returns Ryan and thank you very much for making me feel very old. Uh, Angela Constance, um, an MP right here in the British Isles, recommended the History of the World podcast Near East summary episode to any students of that era. So that's very kind of you, Angela, to recognise that of being some value and I appreciate your recommendation. So thank you again. 
As for the podcast itself, it's going to be time to shift our focus yet again. So we're moving now across to the far east. And initially what we need to do, we need, need to set the scene. So next week's episode is going to be about Neolithic China. So we need to sort of get into that first big archaeological dynasty of the Shang dynasty. But there was a lot going on in China before then. And we need to really tie up all the loose ends of um, when we was last in China dis- discussing the emergence of pottery around the Xiang Rendong cave. We need to tie that up to the Neolithic period, find out what happened and enter into the Shang dynasty. So next week's episode is going to be about Neolithic China. Before I sign off, I'd like to apologise for the huskiness of my voice in the last two podcasts. I've been suffering a bit, but not too badly. It's just uh, something in the back of the throat that I'm finding hard to shrug off. But at least it makes my voice sound a little bit different, which can be good. A change can be as good as a rest, I suppose. So, But no no need to uh, wish me get well soon. I've been fine. I've, I've been carrying on as usual. It's just the voice. It's just the voice that's been getting attacked which isn't any good for a podcaster whatsoever but hopefully next week I'll sound a little bit a little bit more back to normal so I'm going to dash off now give the larynx a bit of a rest and we'll look forward to starting off again next week in the lands of China which are steeped in fascinating history so it should be one to look forward to so we'll see you again this time next week and have a great week everybody The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.